Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. I come from a long line of depressive people on both sides of my family. My father had low-grade undiagnosed depression, and it went way back in his family, and who knew? You know, little Prozac back in the Fonda clan could have changed all of our lives. This is Death, Sex, and Money. I've got bad news for you, Johnson. We're all dead. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. S-E-X. And need to talk about more. A million dollars isn't exactly a lot of money these days. I'm Anna Sale. We have these words to signify the American moment that shaped you. Millennials, Gen X, Boomer, Greatest Generation. They're not always so precise, though. Ask any millennial. Maybe a better question is, what do you think about when you think about Jane Fonda? My name isn't pretty pretty. It's Barbarella. The universe's sexiest space traveler or the divisive activist during the Vietnam War. And we, as political people, have to be sure that we don't ever stop until the people in this country understand that it's been an American defeat. Or maybe the elegant powerhouse in the newsroom. You want to play golf or you want to fuck around? But this is my Jane Fonda. Are you ready for your primetime workout? Fitness goddess. Left, right, left, right. Swing your arms, lift your knees. Seamlessly transitioning between sit-ups and marching in place and lifting weights, all in that belted leotard. My sister and I clumsily improvised along in front of the TV. I was about 10 years old, using towels as mats on the carpet, wearing bathing suits over pantyhose, and lifting cans of stewed tomatoes instead of hand weights. That Jane Fonda was graceful, better coordinated than the rest of us, and so assured. But that's not how Jane Fonda saw herself. You know, it, I, I was in my 60s before I realized that I could just be who I was, and that was okay. Good enough is good enough. That's what Jane Fonda and I talk about in this episode. What changed for her? It was after her third divorce from cable executive Ted Turner and decades of being haunted by death and confused about sex and intimacy. She says that sense of searching and looking for reassurance started around puberty. It was not good. <laughs> I was... It was a very confusing, scary time for me, and I, oh, well, I just had a lot of questions and fears, and I didn't know where to go for answers. 
And it's why, at age 76, Jane Fonda published a guidebook for teenagers called Being a Teen. It's about love, anatomy, and relationships during those awkward years. It follows her last two books, her tell-all memoir and a self-help book called Prime Time about living it up after 60. But she's gone back to her early years when that feeling of isolation started. Like a lot of girls, up until puberty, I was a tomboy. I climbed trees and I wrestled and I, I said, oh, yeah, who says? When I hit puberty, my voice went underground and I, it was, well, whatever you say, you know, I kind of went along and tried to fit in, which meant doing things that I shouldn't have done. And, and that became a pattern. Through three marriages, two Oscars, and countless public identities, a pattern of always trying to fit in. Despite her family's wealth and pedigree, her father, Henry Fonda, was a star from the time Jane was born. Her mother was a socialite with royal roots. Jane Fonda is named after Henry VIII's third wife, a distant relative. When Jane Fonda was a girl, her family moved from California to the East Coast, and within a few years, her father announced plans to get a divorce. Her mother was committed to an asylum, where she killed herself by slitting her throat with a razor. Jane was 12. Her brother Peter was 10. We found out through magazines how she killed herself, and we never were told by anybody in our family that she did, and nobody ever mentioned her name again. And so it was like a huge emptiness. On top of that emptiness came the alienation of adolescence, which every teenager goes through in some ways, but that doesn't make it less painful. Nothing seemed normal. I didn't get my period till I was 17, and I was at boarding school, and I would buy Kotex every month and pretend. I pretended a lot of things because I wanted to fit in, but I didn't fit in. First of all, my father was famous, and second of all, I thought maybe... I mean, I actually did think that I maybe was supposed to be a boy. It was, you're probably too young to remember this, but the very first transgendered person to come into public notice was Christine Jorgensen, who became a woman. And I was utterly riveted to this and was convinced that I was supposed to be a boy. And um, Can you tell me more about that? Uh, I used to get a mirror and sit in such a way that I could look at my my vagina and try to figure out if maybe it wasn't supposed to be a penis. I just, I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know what was supposed to be there. I didn't know what was normal. I didn't feel any of the things that my girlfriend seemed to be feeling. It was scary. It, it really was. You were 12 when your mother killed herself. Who took care of you after that? Well, my my mother's mother, my grandmother, was the person who lived with us. Eventually, my father uh, married a woman who I loved very much. She was only seven years older than I, but she was capable of, God bless her soul, and she's still alive, Susan. She was mm-hmm. an extremely beautiful woman who brought laughter into our family, and that was wonderful. And she didn't 
stay married to my father very long, but but she meant a great deal to me and my brother. We called her mom, too. Hmm. How old were you when she became your stepmother? (laughs) Thirteen. And um, it was she that, that, that when I finally did get my period at 17, she took me to a gynecologist who you know, could answer my questions. The first thing I did when I was alone with him was burst into tears. I started asking questions and just burst into tears. And he said, you know something, this is absolutely normal. So how do you think, I mean, you describe your your teenage years as a time of just Confusion. Confusion, yeah. How, how do you think that affected your relationships with men over your life? Well, it took a long time. You know, it's it's not just the question of sex. It's, it's, I wasn't dealt a good hand when it came to understanding what intimate relationships are supposed to be like. And I'm not, I did a lot of work on myself while I was married to Ted Turner. And so when the time came for us to no longer be together, all the things, all the work that I had put into myself, I finally could apply. When you say work, what does that mean? Well, it includes therapy. I, I guess I started in therapy when I was, after I'd been married to Ted for about three years. That Was and, that the first uh, time you'd been in therapy? Yes. Wow. And it was, it was... Um, you know, not Freudian lying on the couch with some guy behind you. Mm-hmm. It was feminist therapy. It was relational therapy. It was a woman sitting and looking me right in the eye and crying with me. And it made me understand everything about me and my life and my family. And it really saved me. And I'm so grateful. Jane Fonda first got married at age 27 to the French filmmaker Roger Vadim. He directed her in Barbarella. And she would later say, in the bedroom, too. They had a daughter and divorced. Then in 1972, Jane Fonda married Tom Hayden, a prominent anti-war activist. He was a co-founder of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. They had a son and divorced in 1990. The next year is when Jane Fonda married Ted Turner, the billionaire cable executive. You have talked after the end of your second marriage, your divorce from Tom Hayden, that you had a, had a breakdown. Yes, I I didn't even realize it at the time. It was only looking back on it that I re- well, I guess I did. I um it wasn't even that it was that good a, a marriage, but you know, sometimes a, a divorce or a crisis can pull the scab off a very 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 early wound, and that's what this did to me. I I couldn't speak above a whisper. I couldn't eat. I could only walk very, very slowly. It was um, all the cliches. Heavy heart, my heart weighed 20 pounds. And that wasn't long. The end of your second marriage and the beginning of your third marriage were pretty close in time. When you started therapy, was it in part to deal with some of the emotional residue from that second divorce? And understanding Um, that breakdown? Okay, since I've written about it, I will say what it is. A month after Ted and I were married, I discovered he was having an affair. And so I left him. And then I decided that I needed to go into therapy. And I went to a couples therapist. And in talking to him about 
the marriage, I realized that part of the problem was mine and that maybe I should give Ted a second chance and that the two of us should go into therapy together, which we did. But then I, unlike him, I continued on my own with therapy. So that, that's how I got into it. And, um, and it's how I got out of it eventually. It was a very scary thing. I was 62 years old and, uh, it was a very safe thing being married to Ted. I didn't have to work. He was funny. He was handsome and fun and all those things. But I knew that if I stayed with him, I could never be a fully realized person. And I had to make a decision. And it was really scary. And I felt like Virginia Woolf, only I had two angels in the house, one on one shoulder saying, oh, come on, Fonda, lighten up. <laughs> you know, I mean... <laughs> God, he's got two million acres of the most gorgeous land in the world, and he's funny, and he keeps you laughing. And on the other shoulder, there was a, an angel with a very soft whisper saying, Jane, you could stay with him and die married, but you'll die not being whole. And so I opted for the whisper. Jane Fonda separated from Ted Turner in 2000 and filed for divorce a year later. She'd left acting during their marriage, and in 2005, she took her first film role in 15 years, opposite Jennifer Lopez. Call me old-fashioned. Marriage is a sacred union that should only be entered into with the utmost care. Weren't you married four times? Yes, dear. I never could have done Monster in Law if I hadn't been married to Ted for 10 years. I mean, Ted taught me that, you know, over-the-top can be okay, you know. I mean, he's completely outrageous and very lovable at the same time. And Ted gave me courage. Ted gave me the courage to be funny. Ted taught me how to laugh. Jane Fonda and Ted Turner are still close, as they told Oprah years after their divorce. But I don't regret a moment of the 10 years that we had together. Best time I ever had. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh. Best time? Mm-hmm. That is not the kind of relationship Jane Fonda had with her father, Henry Fonda. This is a famous scene between father and daughter acting together in the 1982 film On Golden Pond. It just, it seems that you and me have been mad at each other for so long. I didn't know we were mad. I thought we just didn't like each other. I I want to be your friend. Oh. Henry Fonda won the Best Actor Oscar for his role. Daughter Jane accepted it on his behalf because he was too sick to attend the ceremony, and he died a few months later. Coming up, the way Jane Fonda made peace with her father. But first, a quick question for you. I want to know how you've dealt with money in your relationships, how you're splitting the bills and protecting your savings, or not, while loving each other. Tell me your stories about joint checking accounts, separate credit cards, prenups, student loan payments, and the stories of how your different backgrounds with money have shown up in these conversations that are about a whole lot more than dollars and cents. Write us with your stories at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org and tell us if you and your partner or ex-partner would be willing to talk with me for a show coming up. In the next episode of Death, Sex, and Money, a look at what happens when you have four kids and are sure you don't want any more, and it's time for Dad to take over the burden of birth control. The two biggest things I worried about was 
all the inspections that had to go on with my genitals in front of other people. And the second thing was actually having, you know, my genitals pierced by sharp objects. Clint Gregan, Australia's reservoir dad, reports back from his appointment with Dr. Snip. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. After a breakup, there's that moment when you look around and notice how much of the stuff you're used to isn't there anymore. That even happens to Jane Fonda when your ex-husband is Ted Turner. I moved into my daughter's house in Atlanta. I was all by myself, which after Ted, the silence was deafening. And I remember standing in the middle of this little bedroom. It didn't even have a closet. And um, I'd been living in 23 kingdom-sized estates mm-hmm. and flying in private jets. And now I'm, I had a rented car and a room with no closet. And I stood in the middle of the room in tremendous pain with sadness that the marriage hadn't worked. And yet there was also this voice that said, I'm okay for the first time in my life. I do not need a man to be whole. And that's what our life is supposed to be about. And man, it takes work. It doesn't just happen. And given the title of this radio show, what is it, Death, Sex, and Money? That's right. (laughs) Living it intentionally means living it with the constant awareness of death. You know, I'm 76. I have a lot more time behind me than I have ahead of me. And living with the awareness of that helps me make decisions in life. It helps me not squander time. Do you feel afraid about death? No. I don't think I'm fooling myself, but no, I'm not afraid of death. You know, I watched my dad die. He took a long time to die, so I had a long time to watch. Hmm. And he was never a talkative person, and he didn't talk to me. I I mean, I, I never got brave enough to ask him, you know, if he was scared or anything. But what it taught me was that I'm, I'm not afraid of dying. What I'm really scared of is dying with regrets, which I feel that he did. And so the minute I realized that, and I was in my mid-40s then, that I realized, okay, then you have to live your life, especially as you get older, so that when you come to the end, you won't have regrets. Not that Jane Fonda thinks she's done everything right. She's apologized repeatedly for that famous picture of her where she's sitting on top of that anti-aircraft gun in North Vietnam, smiling and clapping with soldiers who are at that moment fighting the United States. She's called that an unforgivable mistake that she'll take to her grave. Your father died in 1982. Uh Uh-huh. What was your relationship like with your father when he passed? Well, I got a chance before he died to tell him that I loved him and that I was sorry that I, um, it's hard to say, that I had hurt him and that I loved him and that I knew that he'd done the best he could. And he never said anything. He just sat 
in a wheelchair with tears rivering down his face. And I knew he didn't like to cry, and I was afraid that he was embarrassed, so I just left. But we had that exchange. What were you apologizing for? Well, when I became famous, um, I would sometimes say things about him that hurt him. And I knew it. He came to me once and told me that I was hurting him and asked me not to, and I never did again. But I I had hurt him. And uh, that's what I'm referring to. But he knew I loved him. Do you have a relationship with your mom's family? Uh, There's no one alive in my mother's family. But uh, I just just got together with my brother three days ago, and uh, he and I made a pact that we're going to go to Ogdensburg, New York, where she is buried, and we are going to kneel at her tombstone, and we are going to plant things and clean it up and pray for her and to her, and we're going to do it together. Isn't that nice? That's wonderful. There's never been closure, so... Have you been to that grave before? No, we've never been there. Never been. We both feel we owe it to her. You know, when she died, I was 12, he was 10, and no one ever mentioned her again. So we want to make up for that. What do you remember about your mother? Well, the mother that I remember is very different than the mother I researched. I remember her as a hypochondriac, febrile, nervous scared, insecure person. And she was all of those things. But then I also discovered that other people's impressions of her were vibrant, um, like men were attracted to her like moths to a flame. Hmm. She was very social. I have her and my father in me. I'm like a bear. I hibernate and like to be alone, and that's my father, and that's the bigger part of me. But then when I come out of hibernation, I like to party real hard, and that's my mother. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Jane Fonda, I think looking at your life and all that you've done, I would not think that you would describe yourself as someone who likes to hibernate. You've been so present in American culture. Oh, I die if I can't be alone. I I feel like (laughs) when I was married to Ted, it was like in Montana. He has three or four different ranches. They're all two hours, one from the other. And we would have breakfast in one, lunch in another, dinner at another. And so we spent a lot of time driving and he'd be in the front seat with some business colleague or something like that. And I'd be in the back and I'd, I'd fall asleep to the sound of his voice. And two hours later, I'd wake up to the sound of his voice. (laughs) And I always had the feeling, doesn't his brain empty out? (laughs) Because I always have the feeling that my brain runs out and that I have to do things like be alone and read and meditate and pray to fill it back up again. 
If I could choose only one way to be from now till I die, it would be alone in nature, preferably at 14,000 feet above the timberline. I could spend the rest of my life that way. But the way she's living right now is with her boyfriend, Richard Perry, a music producer famous for his work with Barbara Streisand, Harry Nielsen, and the Pointer Sisters. They've been together four and a half years. So being alone, I want to ask you about that because the way you talked about your divorce from Ted Turner and your memoirs and what it was to finally be single at that stage in your life... Now you're in relationship again. You live with your partner. Tell me about that decision to recommit to somebody. Well, I went seven years celibate, and I thought that was it. But then I met, well, I'd already met Richard, but I reconnected with Richard. And I like men who can bring me into a world that's foreign to me, and his is the world of music. And he's something new for me. He's kind. Hmm. And he's very, very easy to live with. It's like living with a girlfriend who likes sex. (laughs) (laughs) And um, He's just real easy going. And I travel a lot and I'm alone a lot and I'm writing a novel and I hole up in my office and days go by and we don't see each other except maybe at night. And also, I'm, I'm working more, so I'm away a lot. And um, also, he has Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of feel like I'm supposed to learn to be more empathic and to kind of slow down. So I'm just learning stuff. Does it feel at all uncomfortable to to know that with his Parkinson's diagnosis that you will be in a caretaking role with him? It's very uncomfortable. Yeah, it's not easy. I'm not a caretaker by nature. I have no idea what the future has in store. I'm I'm trying to do it one day at a time. Mm -hmm. But I get sick all the time, and he never does, and he takes such good care of me and brings me food in bed when I'm sick. I have a shot immune system. And, you know, so the least I can do is to try to give back a little bit of that caretaking. But it's not my nature. My friends tell me I'm wrong, but I know. Do you say that self-critically? I mean, do you you think that you're selfish? No, I don't think I'm selfish, but I'm I'm just... um, There's just so much that I want to do in life, including being alone and including going into the mountains and forests and and writing and acting. And I'm, I'm not someone who can give that up for somebody else. Maybe that's selfish. Well, you could certainly, it could also be called self-actualized. <laughs> There's two spins to that. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. When you reemerged from your celibacy, was sex different? Yeah. So I, I think sex, yeah, that's true. Death, sex, and money. Um, <laughs> is, yeah, I think that when a woman is older, sex is better. 
partly because she doesn't give a fuzzy rat's ass anymore. <laughs> you know, she's not out there in the marketplace anymore. She knows her body. She knows what she wants. She's less afraid to ask for it. If it doesn't work out, so what? <laughs> Do you think you might marry again? Oh, gosh, no. No, 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 no. That very thought of it makes me feel like somebody's got their hands around my neck. Really? <laughs> Claustrophobia. Just the idea of the institution? Yeah. I, I'm a believer in it. I, I was... The, well, I went to Jane Goodall's 80th birthday last night at the home of friends of mine who've been married for 50 years, and I said, oh, I'm so jealous. You know, that will never be mine to have. Mm -hmm. And people who I know who have been married long like that tell me that it's so, it's so beautiful. It's just so beautiful. And I can, I can kind of smell how beautiful it must be, but I will never know it. No, no. I'd, I can more envision myself disappearing into a monastery than getting married again. <laughs> <laughs> I have one, one more question. Okay. When you described moving into your daughter's house in Atlanta and that feeling of quiet and aloneness, it made me wonder, what's been the role of friendship in your life? You've been famous your entire life. I mean, has it been difficult to have friendships? No, I, I didn't used to have friendships. I only started having friendships uh, um, late-ish. I mean, real friendships, I would say, in my 50s. And they're all women. My women friends are all younger than I am. I give regular dance parties now. And it's a way young crowd. And I sort of take on the mother figure. In fact, I sign my emails to some of the ma. Jane Fonda. She says her favorite things to dance to these days are swing, big band music, and the Pointer Sisters. I don't want to take it Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Emily Botine, James Ramsey, Jessica Miller, Henry Malofsky, Chris Bannon, Bill O'Neill, and Jim Briggs. Special thanks to Avi Shea Artsy for his help with this episode. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. Write us with what stories about death, sex, and money you want to hear. Deathsexmoney at WNYC.org is the email. Find us on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and write us an iTunes review. It helps us get the word out. Remember, I want to hear your stories about love and money, what you've combined, what you've kept separate, what's worked, and what hasn't. But for right now... Head up. Woo! You did good work. Now, thank you. It's all over for today, and I'll see you next time.
I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.